Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first fourth Geopolitical Economy Hour, our fortnightly show uh, uh, on the politic political and geopolitical economy of our times. I'm Radhika Desai. And I'm Michael Hudson. Um, today, we are continuing our discussion of de-dollarization. As many of, of you know, we have structured our discussion around some 10 questions. And uh, last time we dealt with the first five. What is money and, and, and what is the relation between money and debt? Is money a commodity? What is the theory that serves the dollar uh, uh, of how the dollar serves as world money? And then because this theory so much relies on the sterling system, we discussed the sterling system. What is it? What was its real basis? not gold, but actually empire, etc. And then we decided that in this show, we will discuss the next five, which is how did the sterling system end? What really happened between the world wars, something on which Michael has written an enormous amount and he knows a great deal. Uh, then we will discuss the dollar system between 1945 and 1971, which is the year when the dollar's gold ring was broken. How did the dollar system actually function during this time? Because we are always told that this was the time when everything was hunky-dory. The dollar system was fine until 1971, but the reality is quite different. And then we are told that after the dollar's gold link was broken, uh, although you know, this may, you know, that this was not somehow some kind of a great disaster. On the contrary, the United States kind of pulled a fast one on the rest of the world and managed to get the dollar to function as the world's money without the burden of linking it to gold. Is that really the case? What is really what really went on? And then we'll finally come to the crisis of today. What are the main dimensions? What are the forms that de-dollarization takes, etc.? Um, I should say, Michael and I were discussing exactly how we are going to, um, you know, uh, exactly how far we are going to get today since we have an hour and we have a lot to discuss. And we thought that it's possible that we go through all of this, but it's quite possible that we will get to question three or question four and then have to leave the rest for uh, the next show. So with having said that, let me dive straight into the question of how the sterling system ended. So as we discussed last time, the sterling system was naturalized and portrayed as if it could have lasted forever. Uh, sort of just basically making the world believe that it is perfectly natural and okay for the currency of one country to serve as the world's money. Uh, and of course, its, it's, it's functioning was attributed to gold. Uh, and we saw last time and uh, that this was not so. And it's important to clarify this because people still hanker after a gold standard. And in reality, you have to understand that while gold was the, the sort of the, the benchmark of the value of, um, of sterling, it was not what made the system tick. What made the system tick were the surpluses, as I showed in the map that I showed last time. Essentially, the fact that Britain had a large empire meant that um, surpluses, as you see in the map, surpluses flowed from the uh, uh, Britain, Britain's non-settler colonies, principally British India, but also some other uh, uh, countries. Um, so, so these surpluses flowed from uh, Britain's colonies, as you see in the blue arrows. All they flowed towards Britain. 
Uh, and th these flows were based on Britain essentially charging these colonies for the, you know, for the privilege of being ruled by Britain. Um, uh, Britain appropriating the gold and foreign exchange value of the uh, uh, huge um, uh, surpluses, the export surpluses that these colonies ran uh, through the rest of the world and so on. So these surpluses were centered in Britain and then they were recycled into the famous capital exports, which essentially financed the industrialization of Europe at this time, of North America, of Southern Africa, and also, of course, the Antipodes, the, the uh, Australia and New Zealand. So essentially, this is where the distinction between the settler and non-settler colonies becomes very important. We also pointed out that um, in this, you know, even though Britain sat on top of the largest empire the world had ever known, the fact of the matter was that this was also a period during which other countries were emerging to challenge Britain's power. Germany linked its currency to gold, not in order to subordinate itself to some sort of gold standard, but rather to make its own currency attractive to the rest of the world in order that it may increase the market for German goods and, 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 and increase, generally speaking, Germany's power over the, uh, large parts of the world. The United States also uh, it waited until 1913, but finally it got around to creating the Federal Reserve System. And this was another way of essentially asserting its own uh, 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 priorities and so on. So uh, in this context, as uh, Marcelo de Checo, uh, uh, whose famous book Money and Empire is really worth a read, as Marcelo de Checo pointed out, it's very important for us not to take what he called a Ricardian interpretation of the Sterling system, but to take a Listian one. He's referring, of course, to David Ricardo, the famous 19th century political economist, who, all, who was a great partisan of free trade and the idea that the world economy was simply a, a homogenous whole united by markets and so on. And he's referring to Friedrich List, who on the contrary, and I, Michael and I would agree much more with List, on the contrary, portrayed the world order as a, a world order composed of national economies. And, and these national economies were often in con con competition, struggle and conflict with one another. And in this context, the industrialization of other major powers to challenge Britain's industrial dominance was bound to destabilize the sterling system and indeed did. Um, and of course, it also relied uh, on the on the fact that Britain's uh, industrial uh, uh, classes, uh, industrial capitalist classes, would accept a regime that was actually quite harmful to their interests. And there was quite a lot of disturbance on that front as well, where they were basically questioning the priorities of the city of London and the wor workings of the gold uh, uh, sterling system. And finally, it rested on working class acquiescence, the idea that Britain could periodically inflict upon its own economy uh, a severe recessions in order to maintain the value of sterling and severe recessions meant, of course, heavy unemployment and working class people were getting more and more organized and opposing. So for all of these reasons, the sterling system was actually weakening uh, throughout uh, in the period up to the, the, uh, the, the uh, 1914 outbreak of the First World War. And one should add here that while this did really got going only after the First World War, 
there was also the beginnings of nationalist restiveness in the colonies, which would also threaten to take away the basis of the sterling system. So all of this was happening. And after the First World War, of course, the British Empire was drastically weakened and a return, a stable return to the gold standard on the part of sterling was simply not possible. So this is the story of how the sterling system ended. And after the sterling system ended, and uh, during and after the First World War, there were a number of really important shenanigans on the part of the United States, in particular vis-a-vis -vis Britain, that uh, uh, that Michael will now talk about. Because really, our second question is exactly what happened between the World Wars. And Michael, also, please feel free to add anything else uh, about the end of the sterling system that you would like to. Well, most of our discussion from here on in is going to be about uh, intergovernmental finance. And uh, what World War I did was, uh, for the first time, uh, it changed the whole rules of how uh, allies and other countries uh, settled all of the balances and the uh, mutual aid that had built up during the war. Uh, after earlier wars, like the Napoleonic Wars, it was normal for allies to say, well, okay, we'll forgive the debts. Uh, we're all fighting the same fight. Uh, we'll start again. Uh, and uh, after, even if you're uh, enemies uh, in the Franco-Prussian War, uh, France owed uh, Germany uh, some reparations, but uh, uh, France simply went to the uh, private banks, borrowed the money uh, and uh, paid Germany so uh, every the whole uh, connections between the world monetary systems were basically private sector finance. Uh, all this changed when the United States said, well, uh, uh, during the war, of course, we're not going to charge you for uh, the tanks and all the aid we give you gave you uh, during the war, but we didn't enter the war. Uh, when uh, you British did and French did. Uh, so we're going to charge, you're still going to have to pay us all the debts that you ran out when we were a neutral country before we ent uh, entered the war. These debts are uh, enormous. And uh, the allies didn't know what to do. They didn't want to be impolite to the United States. So they said, all right, we're going to uh, make uh, Germany the loser pay reparations that will enable us to pay you the inter-allied debts. So uh, the allies uh, with American uh, uh, agreement said, German, Germany has to pay the allies enough so they can pay the money that we've charged them for the debts that they didn't expect to have to pay uh, after World War I. Well, the result was uh, very rapidly a, a crisis. The uh, Germany was stripped of its uh, uh, steel-making regions. It was stripped of its assets. Uh, it was left almost unable to pay, but burdened with uh, enormous reparations that uh, it couldn't possibly pay. And the result was uh, uh, a collapse. Uh, Germany uh, tried to pay by ha uh, simply uh, throwing mark, uh, its currency mark onto the foreign exchange market. And uh, the foreign exchange uh, rate would uh, would plunge. When a foreign exchange rate goes down, just as uh, uh, what happened in the third world and uh, after World War II, uh, the price of imports go up. If uh, the price of uh, everything Germany needed, uh, oil, steel, machinery, uh, was all denominated in dollars. So the price of imports went up. And as a result, uh, the when the uh, German Reichsbank had to create more money uh, to finance the transactions of just 
people and businesses at the higher prices. Now, this is the exact opposite of what you're told by today's monetary theorists. Today's monetary theorists say, well, governments run a deficit and that puts money into the economy and that uh, uh, causes a trade deficit and that uh, uh, leads to uh, uh, foreign, bar uh, uh, foreign borrowing. Just the reverse. Germany only created money at home because its international uh, currency was falling. So immediately for the balance of the 20s, after 1921, there was a huge uh, debate over should Germany have to pay reparations and uh, should the Allies have to pay international debts? Now, this argument is very important uh, because the arguments put forth in the 1920s were the identical arguments that the IMF would put forth after World War II. And the 1920s uh, bankruptcy of Europe was a dress rehearsal for how the IMF has bankrupted uh, third world countries and the global south countries. Uh, the and there were two sides to the argument. As I've discussed in uh, my book, Trade Development and Foreign Debt, uh, I go over uh, these arguments. Uh, on the one hand, you had uh, the people who not only hate Germany, but even more than they hated Germany, they hated labor. Uh, Bertel Olin uh, in uh, the United States and Jacques Roof in France said that any country could pay any amount of foreign uh, debt simply by taxing the country domestically and lowering the price of uh, labor, lowering the wages. Uh, you could squeeze enough out if you just uh, squeezed labor enough and uh, that that would somehow uh, create uh, uh, whatever you uh, took away from the domestic economy and Marx could be paid right over to the uh, allies. Uh, well, uh, Keynes and uh, in the American uh, economy, Harold Moulton said, uh, this is nonsense. Solving the budgetary problem, uh, raising a budget surplus does not help the transfer problem. Uh, Germany was able to tax its uh, labor and its industry in uh, Marx, but how did it pay in dollars? Uh, it can't tax them in dollars because Germany used the uh, uh, the Marx system. And uh, the question is, how on earth can Germany translate this uh, economic surplus that it squeezes out of labor and industry to pay foreign countries? Well, that's exactly the same problem that has occur would occur in Argentina after uh, uh, and other countries after uh, World War II. And uh, uh, Keynes pointed out uh, very saying, well the uh, uh, country is going to have to uh, export, but that means that uh, the only way that Germany can uh, pay is by uh, having other countries buy its exports. But as soon as the German mark began to go down, as it tried to pay its foreign debt, and foreign debt is the main factor that's pushed down uh, third world uh, uh, exchange rates in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, as this happened, uh, uh, America immediately raised its tariffs, uh, and it passed a law in 1921 against uh, countries uh, selling and depreciated currencies. So the United States said, well, uh, Germany has to pay uh, the allies to pay us, but uh, we're not going to buy German exports uh, to provide the dollars. We're not going to give the rest of the world dollars at all. Uh, it'll have to pay us in dollars without any way of earning them. Well, obviously, this uh, wouldn't work. Well, the question is, what did happen? Uh, uh, in practice, the United States 
uh, said, well, uh, we'll settle it the old fashioned way uh, by uh, having the private sector balance matters by uh, um, uh, lowering, by having the Federal Reserve lower interest rates in the 1920s, just like today's quantitative easing, the low interest rates would make it profitable for American investors to buy the bonds of uh, German municipalities so uh, and to buy up uh, German companies. So the Americans would, uh, investors would buy German municipal bonds and lend to uh, German companies or by German companies, uh, Germany would take these dollars and uh, pay the allies. The allies would uh, pay uh, the United States and uh, there'd be a circular flow and everything would balance. Well, uh, meanwhile, uh, England still had problems paying the United States. So uh, and England, uh, uh, the Bank of England came to the United States and said, well, you've got to keep your interest rates really low so that uh, people will lend to England too because uh, we need uh, uh, to get money so we won't be strapped. So the United States flooded, the Federal Reserve flooded the economy with money, and the, a lot of this money uh, was used for the stock market boom. And the stock market boom of the, uh, that finally collapsed in 1929 because it was all funded on credit. People were using this credit to buy stocks on margin. And just as uh, uh, in the subsequent uh, financial bubbles, uh, they're created by borrowing money to buy stocks on margin, and uh, they're all uh, basically debt-financed bubbles, and, and that's what happened. Finally, there was a collapse in 1929. Uh, countries moved into depression, uh, 1929, 1930. Finally, in 1931, all, the governments got together and declared a moratorium on uh, foreign debt. Uh, on inter-allied debt, on German reparations. Uh, they declared a moratorium. The United States, well, we won't ask for money now, but we may ask for uh, European money later. Once, If Europe ever gets prosperous, we're going to ask for the money and we're still going to make it pay. But for the time being, you know, we understand we forced you into depression. Uh, Roosevelt uh, came to uh, office and uh, he immediately devalued the dollar and blocked gold sales and said, well, we're not going to uh, uh, be tied by uh, gold anymore. We're going to uh, basically uh, nationalize uh, uh, the uh, the gold stock. And uh, Keynes wrote uh, in England, Roosevelt is magnificently right. Of course, you don't want gold to limit what any country does. So America and uh, the rest of the world broke free they still didn't recover from the recession, uh, the depression, uh, until uh, World War II. And uh, World War II, of course, uh, changed matters. And I think Radica has a few things to say about that. Yeah, no, thanks, Michael. That's really excellent. So, and I just wanted to, as you were speaking, I remembered a few things that I felt I should really add to what you were saying. So, first of all, I just wanted to say that uh, in your super imperialism, you make a really important point, which really is worth quoting. So, that's what I'm going to do. Because uh, what Michael was discussing about the US's refusal to um, essentially agree that the aid that it had given to the uh, allies during the First World War should just be treated as a grant and the US should not demand repayments and the way in which this set off the financial merry-go-round of uh, then the French and the uh, British then demanding reparations from Germany and then the whole the US supplying. So essentially what it did is that 
the Germany had to pay reparations to Britain. Britain and France had to pay debt repayments to the United States. And the United States, having made it next to impossible for Germany to earn much through exports, then essentially forced the private sector to lend to German municipalities. So there was this financial merry-go-round, which eventually collapsed, as Michael says, with the first uh, with, with the 1929 crash. Um, but in the beginning of this, Michael says in, in super imperialism, he says it would be false to say that the United States provoked World War II. It is true, however, that no act by whatever nation contributed more to the genesis of World War II than the intolerable and insupportable burden which the United States deliberately imposed on its allies of World War I and through them on Germany. So I think this is a really valuable and important point, and it also will connect up with the other points we'll be making about essentially how the United States has, over the last century and a half probably, essentially, or certainly over the last century, mastered the technique of profiting from wars that it often, it can instigate or otherwise encourage thousands of miles away. And I think this has been very important. The, so, 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 uh, uh, and and um, also, uh, uh, Michael, you said that uh, uh, the U United States was keeping rates low in order to essentially force the private sector to finance, uh, 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 you know, to, to to essentially lend money to Germany. But it was also the case that the uh, the U.S. at this time, although it really wanted to to have, uh, it really wanted to. Um, uh, uh, make the dollar the world's money because sterling was now no longer capable of doing so, it found that it could not do so quite so easily. And for a time, it was countenancing some sort of dollar sterling condominium, so to speak, a joint dollar sterling system. And in the interest of pursuing this, the U.S. was also keeping interest rates low during the, during the early and mid-1920s in order to, uh, uh, and to essentially encourage Britain to go back on the back onto gold after the interval of the First World War. And finally, a, a really important point, which is very critically important, partly because there are so many people that think that somehow a gold standard would solve everything. It's important to remember that gold standard has typically been quite deflationary because essentially, you know, as we said early on, cap capitalism uh, and money have a sort of strange sort of relationship because capital can only be accumulated in money. And therefore, capitalists want money to retain its value. So what capitalists need from money in order to retain its value is to restrict its supply. Because only that is the only way capitalist states know how to make, the, uh, make uh, money retain its value. But at the same time, in order for money to facilitate the expansion of capitalism, in order to facilitate ever wider accumulation, you need money to be in good supply. So that deflationary monetary order is a bad thing. So capitalists essentially are, 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 are want to have their cake and eat it too, and they can't have both at the same time. So they're always in this uh, problem. And gold has typically been deflationary because it is an artificial way of restricting the value of money. Um, uh, sorry, res restricting the supply of money in order that money will retain its value uh, because it does not have any rational way of deciding on investment priorities and so on. So it can only do it in, in this fashion. Now, yes, I, I do have uh, some other things to say which are um, uh, relevant to this second question of, of today, which is um, 
you know, what happened in the interwar period. So the final thing, you know, in addition to what Michael is saying, the final thing that happened is Keynes's Bretton Woods proposals. That is to say, um, Keynes, uh, in order to, um, in, in order to, um, uh, 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 well, in the interwar period, the whole there was a Great Depression. International uh, trade and payment systems had collapsed. There was a lot of uncertainty. Currencies were very volatile against one another, and this was not making recovery any easier. So uh, there was a, a, a big conference towards as as it became clear that the Allies were going to win the war, especially after 1943 and Stalingrad. It became clear that the war would be won by the Allies. It was only a question of time. So then. Post-war planning, planning for the post-war period began in earnest. And a, a large part of this planning took place at a New Hampshire resort called Bretton Woods. And out of that has come the post-Second World War systems of international economic gov international governance, which include the United Nations. It includes the uh, World Bank, the International Monetary Fund. And given that the uh, effort to try to create a international trade organization failed, they had to accept the uh, stopgap arrangement that was the general agreement on tariffs and trade, which in the 19, after 1995 became the World Trade Organization. So uh, in order to understand, uh, so, so it, it is very important from our point of view to understand the proposals Keynes made at Bretton Woods. So you see here in this diagram, basically Keynes arrived at Bretton Woods as the head of the British delegation. Britain, between the two wars, had experienced what can only be called the steepest decline in the power and status of a that a country has ever known. Because in 1914, Britain sat on top of the biggest empire the world had ever known uh, and the biggest creditor to the world. And in the course of the next uh, 30 odd years, Britain declined from these positions. Uh, its in the industry was increasingly uncompetitive. Its uh, financial hold on the world and the monetary hold on the world had declined. Its colonies were getting restive and decolonization was impending. So Keynes arrived at Bretton Woods with a set of proposals that would make it possible for a much weakened country like Britain to still thrive and pursue policies that were beneficial to British people and the British economy. And he was very aware that, uh, and he knew, by the way, as I said last time, he knew better than practically anyone how the gold sterling system worked because his first book, Indian Currency and Finance, had been about nothing but that. So he knew that, that those arrangements, the, the time in which those arrangements could have worked was past and new arrangements were needed. He was very aware also that Britain, not only was Britain no longer sort of the head honcho in the, in the world system, but that there was now a greater dispersion of productive power and financial power around the world. So he came to Bretton Woods with an original set of proposals, and I underlined original because over the course of many much negotiation, they tended to be whittled down. And many people think that the post-war uh, 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 system that we got in the end was a result of Keynes's proposals, but in fact, it was a result of Keynes's eventual defeat. But the reason it's very important to understand what he proposed is that it gives us a uh, the, the framework of thinking which allows us to see what's wrong with the post-war system. So basically, he proposed that there should be a 
uh, multilaterally created new currency. He said, for want of a better name, I'm going to call it Bangor. So that's what you see at the bottom of the screen there uh, with, the, with the green uh, little dot. And the value of Bangor, Keynes said, would rely on that of 30 commodities, 30 of the most heavily traded primary commodities. Remember last time we discussed that primary commodities are critically important because primary commodities go into the production of everything else. So whether it is oil or, or iron ore or copper or what have you, wheat, etc., these primary commodities go into the production of everything else. Every economy needs these and therefore the prices of these are critically important for any economy. So it will be based not on gold. Gold was one of the 30 commodities, but on these 30 primary commodities. Bancor would be issued by an organization which you see in the center there called the International Clearing Union. And Bancor would not be used by as domestic currency. You and I wouldn't use it to buy a restaurant meal or a bar of chocolate. We would only central banks could use it for in order to settle imbalances. So we say between two countries, if one country exported $50 worth of goods to another country and that country exported $70 worth of goods to the first country, then the imbalance is not 50 plus 70, which is 130. The imbalance is only 20. And that's what those were the imbalances that that Bancor would be used to settle. And the other important thing about Bancor is that countries could buy Bancor, but they could not sell Bancor. So they would need to buy Bancor in order to settle their imbalances. But once having done so, they could not sell it. And uh, so, so, so that meant that um, uh, the, the, the idea was that countries were, were to be discouraged from accumulating too much Bancor and the way they could they, they could use it to buy other things and, and to settle uh, uh, their, their, their um, uh, uh, accounts with each other, their imbalances with each other, but they could not use it, say, to make an investment in a foreign country or, or what have you. So they could buy Bancor, but they could not sell Bancor. Um, all of this, uh, there were a couple of other uh, important things that uh, a couple of other things that are important about this. Number one, this system would only function in a system of capital controls. The idea was that you cannot manage your economy, uh, uh, for example, for full employment, for high levels of activity, etc., unless you were able to control the inflow and outflow of funds. And this is very important because, you know, in more recent times, particularly after the 1980s and 90s, when so many countries lifted capital controls, we have been asked to become used to the idea that not having capital controls, having free capital flows is totally natural and desirable. But this is actually not the case. We are told that, for example, there is a so-called... Um, uh, 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 the the holy trinity that is to say you can have a stable currency a, a um uh, 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 you know uh, yeah you you can have stable currency you can have a, 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 a you know independent monetary policy and uh, a, 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 um, a and free capital flows you can have all of these you can't have all three things at the same time you have to choose one of them and most people say you have to you know essentially choose either one or the other but keep free capital flows 
open. In reality, that is the thing that can most easily go because all countries need a stable currency and an independent foreign policy. So it's very important to know that capital controls are very critically important. And also countries keep countries uh, lift capital controls, not because it's beneficial for you or me and ordinary people. They lift capital controls so that rich people can easily take money into and out of economies. And it is entirely so that they can take their money wherever they want. They can escape taxes. They can look for more lucrative opportunities, but it does not help us. And the final element that Keynes proposed in his Bretton Woods system was creditor adjustment. That is to say that if you have a trade imbalance, you know, there is a, some countries have around persistent trade surpluses and other countries have persistent trade deficit. Um, and uh, similarly, also some countries are exporting capital, other countries are importing capital, their deficit in capital. All these sorts of balances would be settled, not just by imposing adjustment, that is to say, uh, ad imposing adjustment on the weaker part, on the trade deficit countries and the capital deficit countries, uh, that is to say, to make them tighten their belts and to make them export more and so on. Creditor, uh, uh, the stronger uh, part of the uh, creditor adjustment was also critically important. That is to say that if you are exporting too much uh, of either goods or capital, you will have to reduce your export surplus either by importing more or exporting less take your choice this was regarded by uh, uh, Keynes as important and he actually made it a part of the structure of the system by essentially uh, pointing out since you could not sell back and you can only accumulate bank or uh, what was the point of accumulating something that you could only use to settle imbalances so that was the main thing and secondly you could not accumulate bank or beyond a certain point if you did then it would essentially be hived off to finance development in various parts of the world that needed it so this was the structure of the system that Keynes brought to Bretton Woods and it was um it was nixed essentially by the United States who would not accept that any other such multilateral currency could be the world's uh, uh, money because it wanted the dollar to be the world's money. I've spoken a lot, so I perhaps should give uh, Michael a chance to come in and add anything he wants on this matter. Well, what I want to add is the reason that Keynes made uh, these proposals. What, what was he trying to uh, avoid? Well, he was trying to avoid the fact that uh, England was broken, was broke. Uh, and uh, in order to understand it, you have to understand how America's strategy throughout World War II was to look at England as uh, its main potential post-war rival. In 1942, when the Allies won their first major victory uh, in, at El Alamein, Churchill uh, gave his famous speech saying, this is not the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning. But just what was that beginning? Well, uh, the beginning was really shaped uh, in Lend-Lease. Uh, when America joined the war, uh, it uh, had a discussion, how are we going to supply uh, the allies uh, with uh, uh, armaments? Uh, we can't uh, have interaction inter-allied debts like they were before, uh, we're going to have to negotiate uh, some means of payment. And uh, England can't pay money right now, but what it can pay is giving up its empire. It can end the sterling area. It can, able, it can agree to become a satellite of the United States. 
uh, and essentially uh, can uh, force itself into uh, a depression and bankruptcy after World War II as the price of our giving it support. Uh, well, that basically was Lend-Lease. Uh, Radica uh, reminded me yesterday that uh, the Wikipedia uh, uh, issue, uh, the, the Wikipedia article on Lend-Lease says, the aid was given for free on the basis that such help was essential for the defense of the United States. Well, if you look at the, uh, my super imperialism uh, has a whole chapter on Lend-Lease describing uh, the negotiations that occurred uh, back and forth and uh, what the United States Congress uh, insisted was uh, the price of uh, Lend-Lease. Uh, there were a number of prices. The first was that uh, when uh, there was going to be peace, England would give up its system of imperial preference. That was uh, uh, what Radica was discussing before, is uh, what, how did England create an empire of uh, dependent uh, colonies? Uh, imperial preference meant that uh, England would give trade uh, uh, favoritism, tariff favoritism, to members of, uh, to its colonies, to members of its empire. Uh, and uh, this was very important because during World War II, uh, uh, India, Egypt, uh, Argentina, uh, uh, and uh, other raw material suppliers built up enormous uh, savings uh, of uh, uh, raw, uh, in income that they got. They sold their uh, grain, uh, mining uh, materials, uh, all sorts of things to the Allies. And uh, the Allies uh, uh, paid them, and uh, they they built up enormous uh, international balances. Uh, British colonies had ten billion dollars of uh, balances they'd saved during the war, and uh, not only was there imperial preference, but these balances were blocked. Uh, England's colonies said you can use these uh, sterling area balances to to pay other sterling area countries, namely us in England. Uh, and the whole idea was that now uh, England's hope was that after World War II, all these balances that its colonies had built up on uh, other countries would be spent on its exports and that would enable it to have full employment instead of the mass unemployment that led to the general strike of 1950, uh, the, the general strike. So uh, the United States uh, basically, uh, this was the beginning of America's rules-based order. The rules-based order means it's a double standard. We have one set for rules, one set for others. England had to agree to abolish the imperial uh, uh, preference system uh, and, uh, and, and let uh, countries uh, uh, spend their uh, $10 billion uh, anywhere, meaning on the United States as well. But the United States did not promise uh, to lower its tariffs and uh, enable these countries to earn money from the United States. Only England uh, was supposed to do this. Well, uh, you all remember what uh, Henry Kissinger said, that it's dangerous to be an enemy of the United States, but it's fatal to be an ally. Uh, England was an ally and it suffered a fatality. Uh, so that you could say that Lend-Lease was America's victory over the Allies, even while World War II was going on. Uh, and pr pr principally against England, uh, because England was viewed uh, almost with as much uh, uh, worry as America was worried about socialism, uh, just as the socialists' uh, economies uh, had uh, their 
uh, capital controls and their price subsidy. Uh, so England uh, seemed to America to be a planned economy to the extent that it wanted its own economy to grow, uh, its own labor force to be employed instead of the American labor force. So uh, Britain had to agree to a free market uh, that ended empire preference. And uh, it also had to agree not to devalue sterling to be make its exports more uh, important. England, uh, when uh, Lend-Lease gave way to, as uh, soon as the uh, war ended, within a week, uh, in, in, it happened very quickly because of the atom bomb uh, uh, on uh, Japan. England had hoped that uh, the war would last a year longer so that it would have a chance to uh, 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 settle things uh, uh, more in its favor. But all of a sudden, it was broke. It needed money. And America said, well, of course, now there's not a war anymore. We don't have to give you any support. Uh, but we will give you a loan. But you have to agree not to devalue sterling until 1949. You have to hold sterling at such a high price that uh, there, nobody can afford to buy your exports. And it said there's one great advantage that we know Mr. Churchill will love. Without exports, you'll have mass unemployment. Without mass unemployment, you'll have low wage rates. You'll win the war against labor, and we'll win the war against you. That was basically the uh, deal that was made. And uh, basically, uh, uh, it was foreign policy agencies. The United States, if you look at the debates during Lend-Lease and the British loan, uh, in Congress, uh, Congress said, well, you know, they say that they need money. and But if they really need money, they have plenty of assets. Let them sell shell oil to the United States. Let uh, the uh, Mr. and Mrs. Astor put their uh, wealth uh, up on the block. They have plenty of things they can give us. Uh, in other words, they treated the United, they treated Britain uh, as a dress rehearsal for how the International Monetary Fund was going to treat third world countries uh, after the 1950s. You, you have to pay a foreign creditor, sell off all of your assets, sell off your public domain, your mining rights, your uh, uh, public infrastructure. That basically is what uh, the United States uh, insisted on uh, that Britain do. And by agreeing to all of this uh, economic surrender, uh, uh, America then went to the rest of Europe and said, well, we've got Britain to agree with this. Uh, this is a fait accompli. Either you join us or you don't. Either you're with us or without. You didn't need George W. Bush to say that. That was uh, the policy that America uh, went to uh, Europe. And uh, England had al has always, ever since, acted as America's proxy, as uh, America's battering ram. Uh, it will sell out and then uh, give a model for uh, uh, America to impose on uh, other countries. So uh, essentially, the IMF... Uh, 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 when it was being structured, was to enforce the system. Well, what Keynes said, the reason that he put forth this idea uh, of uh, the Bancor that Radek has described, as he said, creditor countries have a moral obligation that we want to make into a legal obligation to enable the debtors to pay them. You can't say you're a creditor making a loan if you prevent the countries from paying the loan. And so uh, Keynes said the, the key element in his proposal for the International Monetary Fund was the scarce currency clause, that uh, countries would uh, uh, borrow uh, this uh, uh, special uh, I, IMF currency, the Bancor, 
they would accumulate it. But if a country would run a sustained payment surplus for more than seven years, and we know what country he meant, the United States, then the, this surplus would be wiped out because it was so large that it would be un, uh, unpayable. Well, this logic is exactly the logic that Keynes applied in the uh, reparations debate in the 1920s, when he said, look what happened. When reparations couldn't be paid, finally, the world saw reality, and they canceled the reparation debts and the inter-allied debts. My system of the bank or designed to uh, write that into law, that if a country like the United States, he didn't mention any country, uh, is going to be a chronic surplus country, and other countries will be chronic debtors, at a certain point, this imbalance will be wiped out. That's the way that we're going to uh, create market balance. We will create a marketplace that uh, has the rules to prevent uh, the market from uh, transferring all the wealth of the world into the creditor countries and bankrupting uh, debtor countries and forcing depression on them. Well, the United States said, that, that's what we want. We want the IMF to enforce depression on the rest of the world because then we can ask uh, Argentina and Chile and Latin America and Asia to do just what England did. You owe us the money, sell off your public infrastructure, sell off your oil rights, sell off your mineral rights. Uh, and uh, essentially, if you look at the debate uh, over Keynes' proposals and what the uh, Brit Britain uh, politicians in the House of Lords uh, wrote, uh, you see this all spilled out. The House of Lords warned that this would happen. The uh, advocates uh, fighting against uh, workers, the main anti-worker anti party was, of course, the Labor Party. Uh, and the Labor Party uh, said, we've got to agree with the Americans. Even though it'll be mass unemployment, well, they're Americans. Uh, the conservatives fought uh, against bankrupting labor. The Labor Party even before Tony Blair uh, advocated uh, fighting against Keynes's proposals uh, and uh, wanted just abject surrender uh, to the United States. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, that's what happened. Uh, the, the task of the IMF turned out to be uh, a replay of the Lend-Lease Agreements and the, the British loan of 1945. It's to lend to the third world export countries. Uh, its prime directive uh, was to uh, promote uh, uh, dependence there. But uh, I'll, I'll get to uh, the 1950s after uh, Radica makes the transition from uh, what Keynes did to uh, uh, what happened in the after World War II. Yeah, thanks, Michael. I mean, again, really very interesting. And it just makes me think of several things that I th thought I should really mention here. Um, you know, uh, not only is the Wikipedia entry wrong that somehow this Lend-Lease was essentially free aid, as you point out, the big price that had to be paid was essentially this uh, surrender of national sovereignty, essentially the surrender of, you know, essentially agreeing to do what the United States wanted you to do on important policy issues. But there's also something further. Actually, countries like the United, uh, uh, the, like the UK were actually very aware of exactly what the US was doing and that the end game that the US was looking for was essentially to be sitting on uh, to be a creditor, which could then dictate, if not repayment, then 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 essentially dictate policies. And in order to avoid being in that situation, for a large part of the Lend-Lease, Britain actually essentially tried to sell assets as much as possible, whatever it could, in order to pay for it anyway. So actually, it was no, it was both monetarily paid for in bulk of the instances, and it 
was also paid for in terms of surrendering policy and very critical policy. I mean, you know, if you could buy policies like these, they are cheap, actually. So uh, in that sense, that there was that. And, 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 and secondly, uh, uh, there's also this, uh, you know, this discussion is very important from the point of view of today, because as some of you may know, the idea of Lend-Lease has been dusted off and put into practice once again vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. Um, and we'll probably be discussing this uh, in a, a sh later show, which because we intend to do one on the political economy of the and geopolitical economy of the Ukraine war. Uh, but uh, uh, it's important to say that, again, most people think that the aid that's being given to Ukraine under Lend-Lease and, and so on is free. It isn't. The United States is running a tab. At the end of this war, whenever that may be, Ukraine or whatever entity that is the successor to Ukraine, because it will be as likely as not a much diminished entity, will be saddled with a big bill. And if it can't pay, all the better, because then the United States will be able to dictate policy. So one way or the other, the people who claim that we are standing up for Ukraine are going to be, not only are they destroying Ukraine right now, but they're going to be squeezing it further. Um, I should also add one other thing. The United States, because it de de it essentially demanded that the, um, that the UK not devalue for a period of time until 1949, etc., also ended up, it did that, and it also ended up enlisting the colonies of Britain in its own favor, because essentially the colonies didn't want to purchase things with overvalued sterling. And they said, why can't we use our sterling balances? Because they are our sterling balances. Remember, this is also the time when these colonies are becoming one by one independent. And they say, well, why can't we use this to buy American goods? Because, of course, at that time, with much of the productive capacity of the world destroyed around the world, the United States was the only major economy left standing and only major economy capable of exporting the things that um, that the colonies might want, and then finally, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, Michael has pointed out this whole point about austerity, this whole point about how essentially uh, 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 exclusively debtor adjustment, uh, which is the opposite of what Keynes wanted, Keynes wanted credit adjustment. To have exclusively debtor adjustment means you are making the weaker party even further weaker by making them tightening their belt, uh, tighten their belt by making them consume less, by imposing recessions on them, etc. And in this point of view, from this point of view, again, let's remember that this is not the only way to pay off your debt. There are actually two very different ways of paying off debt. And I think it's important to remember them as we try to assess these arrangements. One is, yes, you restrict your consumption. You say, okay, if I owe, owe you uh, uh, X amount of dollars, I'm going to restrict my consumption. I'm not going to not eat. I'm going to not eat my house and I'm going to repay the debt. But the other way, and of course, you know, some people can do so with minor difficulty. For others, it will be too great a difficulty. And for societies, it is, you know, creating generalized misery in order to, by paying debts these ways and also inflicting misery on those least able to bear it, like working people, the poor, etc. But there is another way of paying debt, which is to increase your capacity to pay to, you know, uh, uh, so you invest in that society and its productive capacity. Or if you are talking about an individual, you say, OK, I will I want to 
take further debt for now. I'm going to train myself as this or that, increase my capacity to earn, and then I will pay off the debt. This is a very different way. And Keynes wanted to institute this way of repaying debt in his ideas about an international clearing union and the dollar and so on, so that it does not inflict such misery. But the United States wanted the opposite. And so now, let us come to uh, uh, slowly to, to the third question about the dollar system between 1945 and 71, uh, which is when the dollar's gold link was broken. How exactly did it work? So essentially, uh, before we get there, it's important to remember a couple of things. One of them is, as I discuss in my geopolitical economy, the United States could see that um, the dollar, the sterling system was weakening already in the early part of the 20th century. And throughout the period that we have just been talking about, the two world wars, the Great Depression, etc., the United States basically calculated its policy ac actions in a way as to try to realize the possibility that the dollar would replace sterling as the world's money. Essentially, the United States saw itself as, um, uh, as the country that would replace the United Kingdom. Of course, the US knew that it was never going to be able to acquire an empire the size that Britain had, but it would essentially try to say, forget about that, but we will try to make the dollar the world's currency. The problem with this was, of course, that the sterling system relied on empire. If you don't have empire, you were going to have a pretty tough time. You're going to have to engage in some pretty uh, shady shenanigans in order to make the dollar the world's money. But this, this desire on the part of the US has been there all along. The United States has always been an expansionary society. And if you read critical historians and, and writers of the United uh, on the US, like Charles and Mary Beard, or more recently, William Appleman Williams, or Andrew Bacevich, and so on, all of these people emphasize that the United States was always expansionary. It justified that by saying that, you know, we are always producing more than we can consume and we need uh, 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 and we are creating more capital than we can ourselves employ. So we need the whole world to be open to us. So ideas of manifest destiny, the frontier thesis, the open door, the Monroe Doctrine, all of these ideas justified U.S. expansionism. And as I said, by the early 20th century, the U.S. had actually made this general expansionism of its history very focused on making the dollar the world's money. And, and one more preliminary point before we look at how the dollar system operated. And that is, you see, uh, Michael uh, discussed monetary imperialism. And that's really quite important because, you see, when you look at uh, ideas, uh, last time we mentioned hegemony stability theory. Hegemony stability theory is not really a theory. It's really a discourse justifying the dollar's world role. But but and, and and so it tends to not be particularly consistent. So sometimes you see that hegemony is they talk about hegemony as though it were productive superiority. The most competitive country is the leading country of the world. And at other times they talk about the country whose currency the world accepts. But these are two quite different things. And it's interesting from one point of view, because we have already seen that running the sterling system actually affected British uh, British the British economy, the British productive economy adversely, because it required a financial system that was the opposite of what an expanding 
a productive economy requires. It was the absolute opposite of that. And, and, and so in a certain sense, you know, and it, therefore it is not surprising that Britain's monetary imperialism, that is to say this gold sterling system, coincided with the period when Britain was losing manufacturing superiority rather rapidly to other countries. And as we'll discuss probably in the next show when we dis discuss the last two questions, we will show that the United States attempt to emulate this. It's the second phase of it, which became reliant very much on certain types of financialization. That also has coincided with the rapid decline of U.S. competitiveness. That is to say, all the people who are sort of, you know, talking up the dollar and saying the dollar is naturally the world's money are not just hiding from people the cost the rest of the world pays. They are also hiding from you the cost that American workers, U.S. workers, U.S. even U.S. small business people are paying for this crazy system. So. Uh, and already this monetary imperialism was a sign of expanding multipolarity because that showed that Britain no longer had productive dominance. It could exercise uh, a monetary dominance to some extent thanks to its empire. Uh, but this was also, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, this was also limited by time. Now, essentially, like I said before, the United States left the world with no choice but to accept the world uh, the dollar as the world's currency by simply nixing all alternative plans, simply saying that if the world could not come to any multilateral agreement, it was not going to cooperate. So uh, then what we have is that, so, so we are told, however, by the hegemony uh, stability theory people that, uh, in fact, the uh, dollar system functioned perfectly fine up until 1979. And then there was some little local difficulty and the dollar's gold link had to be broken. And in any case, it was a masterstroke. But nevertheless, all the people who talk about uh, U.S. hegemony tend to think that the post-Second World War period up to 1971 was a period of dollar hegemony and American or U.S. hegemony. But if we actually look at the reality of the period from 1945 to 1971, we see the opposite. What we see is an extremely tumultuous couple of decades and a half. So uh, essentially, the story would be can be compressed into the following. Um, that first of all, without an empire, the dollar could not export uh, uh, capital to the rest of the world. It did a little bit under the Marshall Plan, but the Marshall Plan itself is totally hyped up. It was not really uh, necessary for European recovery, which was largely done under its own steam. And what's more, the Marshall Plan credit that was given to Europe also came with multiple strings attached, including, you know, uh, strings that made this aid not particularly helpful to Europe. But nevertheless, the U.S. could not export much capital. So essentially what the U.S. started doing was uh, eventually to, uh, be, when this period of export of capital was, was over, essentially it started supplying the world with liquidity by uh, 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 running deficits. So this is the opposite. The, Britain was the creditor nation of the world when it were, ran this gold sterling system, and it could do that thanks to her empire. Without an empire, the U.S. could only uh, 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 run the dollar system by running deficits, by becoming increasingly indebted to the world. So now in the 1940s, actually, uh, we had a kind of special period in which the United States, thanks to the devastation of the rest of the world's economy and the great boost that the war gave to the U.S. economy, um, 
the US was running huge export surpluses. And because when you are running an export surplus, the world has to pay you dollars rather than you making dollars available to the rest of the world, there was a general condition of dollar shortage. Uh, and and, and the Marshall Plan was not really able to alleviate this dollar shortage. And of course, as a consequence, uh, European economies, rather than opening themselves up to free trade, etc., naturally chose to protect themselves as much as possible because they had to manage the relations between their economies and the rest of the world carefully in order to conserve scarce foreign exchange. So, uh, so this was a situation. So really, the dollar system was there. There was no alternative but it wasn't working particularly well either and certainly not contributing to the world's world recovery. In fact, the key thing, the only proposal of Keynes that actually survived this uh, Keynes is uh, the U.S.'s nixing of Keynes's proposal was capital controls. The U.S. had to accept that unless European countries uh, 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 practice capital controls, that is to say, manage the inflow and outflow of money uh, uh, from their economies and into their economies, there would be such a lot of economic devastation. And this could only increase the attractiveness of communism in Western Europe. And this was to be avoided at all costs. So the United States accepted capital controls. And capital controls was what made it possible for all these European economies to organize uh, their um, their recoveries with a lot of state involvement, a lot of state ownership, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but they allowed them to organize this. So uh, they did manage to do it, and by 1958, they were sufficiently recovered to be able to finally make their currencies convertible. And of course, with convertible currencies of these countries, they could also use their each other's currencies in their trade. And almost overnight, what had been a dollar shortage turned into a dollar glut. Nobody wanted dollars since there were European currencies of far stronger economies that were becoming convertible. Remember, bulk of the growth of the post-Second World War period took place actually in the recovering economies. So essentially, there was a dollar glut. And also around this time, you also began to see the first declines, post-war declines in US exports. Eventually, these declines in exports would become trade deficits, etc. But we'll discuss that another time. And also around this time, the famous Belgian uh, economist Robert Triffin uh, proposed that th there was something inherently wrong about supplying the world's, uh, world with liquidity via deficits. Uh, essentially, uh, and at that time, remember, these deficits were not due to trade deficits, but because of U.S.'s uh, military spending abroad in the Korean War, the, the, later the Vietnam War, and so on. So he said that these sorts of deficits, basically, there was a, he proposed that there was a dilemma here, because the more liquidity you supply via the deficits, the greater the deficits, that may mean greater liquidity, but the size of the deficit made the dollar less attractive. And the Triffin dilemma essentially operated throughout this period and essentially the major trading partners of the United States, rather than uh, accepting dollars, they said, no, the dollar is convertible into gold, so we want gold instead. So within a very, very short period between 1958 and 1961, the European principally had drained so much gold out of the United States that the United States could no longer back the dollar with gold on its own. So a gold pool had to be created, pooling the gold of all the 
countries involved in order to back the dollar. And the countries involved only did so because they thought this would give them a place at the table when eventually this crazy system came to an end and they could negotiate a better system. And even while the United States kept trying to talk, you know, as though there was no problem saying, you know, the, the, you know, we have lots of assets abroad and so on and so forth. There's nothing to worry about. We are not living beyond, beyond our means. Nevertheless, they may be talking in this way, but they were walking in a very different way because they were taking a number of measures, reduce, trying to reduce the payment deficits by giving tax, uh, 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 by, by removing tax incentives for outgoing FDI, trying to keep uh, 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 money within uh, the United States by imposing a tax on uh, interest earned elsewhere, uh, increasing domestic military procurement, etc. There's a whole long list. I won't go into that, but a number of efforts were made in order to curb U.S. deficits. And, 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 and things did not improve. And by 1967, they were so bad that the domestic convertibility of the dollar into gold had to be ended. In the same year, the French also withdrew from the gold pool, saying this is simply not making sense. Uh, the United States kept the game going by basically requiring the rest of the world to not demand gold. But eventually, by 19, sorry, that should say 1971, there was a run on the dollar and the Nixon administration had to end convertibility. So if you look at this series of events, you would not believe that the dollar was the world's money in any kind of stable fashion. So that is the story. Michael, perhaps you want to add something. I want to add a quantitative backing of all of this. Uh, in 1945, the United States had uh, its gold reserves uh, had all been flowing to the United States in the 1930s. And during the war, it was flight capital. People were afraid to hold their gold in Europe because they thought Germany uh, was going to attack it. So most of the gold was in the United States in 1945. Uh, if the, the America uh, really had uh, wanted to create a system of balance, uh, it would have done uh, what you described. It would have helped other countries actually invest to development, develop. What you describe as the nightmare for the United States, that other countries would invest to develop and wouldn't need to be de dependent on the United States. Between 1945 and 1950, the United States raised its gold holdings from 20 billion to 25 billion, or almost 25 billion. To 75% of the world's monetary gold stock was held in the United States. And uh, that was what you called the dollar shortage. Other countries, without having uh, enough dollars, they were forced to do what England called stop go. Whenever England would begin to recover, its uh, businesses would expand, workers would be employed, and they'd have to import grain, they'd have to import their food, they'd have to import other things. The uh, pound sterling would go into deficit. England would have to raise its interest rates in order to borrow the money to finance the deficit to keep the exchange rate of sterling stable, and this rising interest rate would cause uh, it to fall back into depression. That was stop go, which mainly meant stop, stop, stop uh, whenever you begin to uh, become solvent. Uh, so uh, the United States was, uh, everybody was complaining by 1950. The United States solved the problem in a way that nobody had expected. The Vietnam War, from the time America, not, I'm sorry, the Korean War. From the time America entered the Korean War in 1950-51, uh, Every single year, uh, its balance of payments moved into chronic deficit 
that got deeper and deeper until 1971 when it was forced off uh, off uh, gold. The entire uh, balance of payments deficit was equal to each year after year to America's military spending abroad. Uh, when I left Chase Manhattan Bank, uh, I was employed by Arthur Anderson to do an analysis of the U.S. balance of payments. And uh, I produced the charts and the statistics. They're repeated in, uh, in superimperialism uh, to show that the entire deficit was uh, indeed the dollars. Uh, at that time, uh, Mr. Mac John McNamara, uh, the head of the, uh, uh, the defense uh, secretary, uh, telephoned Arthur Anderson and said if they uh, supply uh, my report, uh, they'd never get another contract from the U.S. government. So uh, my boss, Mr. Barsanti, uh, came in and apologized to me and said uh, uh, that they, they couldn't publish it. So, uh, But it, it, their art department had made uh, very nice charts, and he gave them all to me. And I went to uh, New York University's uh, business school, and I published it, uh, all these statistics in a monograph, uh, summarized in superimperialism. Uh, the Federal Reserve uh, then uh, wrote, thought, how, how are we going to cope with this? They didn't want to attack me, obviously, so they attacked all the publications of NYU, uh, the business school, an overall thing, and said, well, the fact that I found uh, the Vietnam, uh, the, uh, uh, the, yeah, not by that time, uh, the Vietnam War responsible uh, for uh, the deficit and military spending doesn't give confidence in NYU's editorial uh, decision. But then uh, one of my students at the new school, where I was teaching uh, international finance and trade, uh, worked for the Federal Reserve and showed me their internal memos saying, yes, all of this is true. We can't let it get out. So all of this discussion about uh, international balance and uh, fairness and as if everything was all the uh, balance of payments deficits were international trade ignore two things. They ignore, number one, military spending that was the key to the deficit, as it actually has been since the 13th century. Uh, that it's war that forces countries into deficit. Uh, that's a war that forces countries to borrow. That was why uh, uh, the Catholic Church, uh, the papacy in the 13th century, uh, legitimized interest-bearing debt to finance uh, the wars, uh, the crusades and the wars it was fighting. So this, this is a constant uh, throughout history. It doesn't appear in any of the free trade economic models. It's as if governments don't exist. And the other thing that doesn't exist in this uh, uh, saying that every uh, balance of payments equilibrium is all trade, they then say, and tra all trade is a result of labor uh, asking uh, for wages. And the way to run a deficit is to uh, institute a class war against labor. You want to fight the labor unions. You want to lower uh, wage levels to en enable countries to have a ba uh, achieve balance. Well, what they mean uh, is balance is obviously the to finance this U.S.-centered military order because the uh, the dollars that uh, countries were accumulating when they weren't asking for gold were loans to the U.S. Uh, uh, treasury by buying treasury bills uh, that were financed not only the domestic uh, 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 budget deficit that was largely military, but also the balance of payments deficit. That was, So the entire stability between uh, 1951 and 1971 for 20 years was uh, provided by military spending as the United States put military bases all over the rest of the world. So what achieved balance was 
military uh, the military deficit, not trade adjustment, uh, not uh, invest in investment adjustment. Uh, all of this is left out. Uh, uh, the trade theory uh, does not have room for the gunboats. Uh, and yet, if you look at uh, the balance of payments for the last uh, 800 years, it's all about the gunboats. Uh, that's the uh, the amazing thing. And what uh, we're focusing on is uh, the politics that uh, to the uh, that uh, international uh, exchange rates and relations are not a function of free market uh, uh, arrangements. They're a function of intergovernmental debt, not not so much uh, private, and uh, military spending, and uh, governments uh, paying uh, their uh, uh, their foreign currency by selling off their infrastructure. I want to make one final comment. When uh, Radica says that uh, uh, stability is achieved by investing, uh, I said that was a U.S. nightmare. That nightmare was imposed, uh, was the, the iron hand was the World Bank. There's a reason it's always it's usually led by a uh, defense department by military heads the uh, the prime directive of the world bank is no country should uh compete with major uh, uh products that the united states exports above all grain the one thing that the world bank is opposed is other countries growing their own food grain uh, from the very beginning it's uh, fought against land reform against land redistribution and uh, pre, uh, said that other we will make loans for export uh, uh, facilities for roads and ports but uh, these you can export plantation crops uh, from huge latifundia you must not grow your own grain you must depend on the United States that's the free market uh, you uh, you must not have government investment. And yet uh, every uh, World Bank mission, they have country missions that they report for every single country. The heads, every single mission report says the first thing they need is domestic currency for agricultural extension, for marketing, for uh, seed development, uh, for education, uh, for all the things that the United States has done under its Agricultural Adjustment Act that Roosevelt uh, imposed that helped American agricultural productivity in the 30s and 40s grow faster than any industry in uh, world history had grown. Farm productivity, that's exactly what America looked at as uh, its nightmare if uh, Argentina, uh, is other uh, Latin America and Africa would grow their own grain. So uh, the idea of this, the dollar dependency was uh, based on the United States using the market to uh, prevent other countries from uh, investing to become independent of reliance on the dollar and on uh, products that are exported by the United States, primarily oil uh, and uh, uh, grain. Yeah, this is uh, fascinating, Michael. And uh, I should say we are probably over an hour, so we should we should uh, uh, stop this uh, for today. And we will take up the last two questions. Uh, that is to say, was there really a Bretton Woods too? That is to say, was th were things just simply carry on as as normal after 1971? And this will become a prelude. Understanding the contradictions of the system after 1971 will help us to understand the current uh, uh, possibility of the demise of the dollar. Uh, as the as as the world's money, but before closing, let me just say that as part of this story, I mean, Michael's absolutely right. I mean, the United States essentially is really afraid of the rest of the world 
developing, growing, etc. But the fact is, it has not been able to prevent it, which is one of the fundamental reasons for the current crisis. So the United States, what it wants to have and what it can have, the difference between the two has grown wider and wider. And this is partly why we see that increasingly desperate military actions of the United States. So in the story, in the story we have to tell, the first the Europeans essentially check out of the dollar system by creating European monetary integration. And later on, uh, other countries, uh, today, even the uh, uh, oil importing countries, the OPEC countries, which were for a while persuaded to hold vast quantities of US uh, currency, they are also checking out. The Chinese, the Russians, the Japanese, everybody is increasingly wary of holding dollars so we this is the story we will have we will tell because essentially and even the IMF and the World Bank yes totally they have been a, a, a loyal servants of the United States in imposing austerity on the rest of the world as much as possible but in the early part by the early 21st century you also see that the rest of the world having been you know bitten several times were now quite shy of the IMF and the IMF and the World Bank's loan portfolios actually shrank uh, and remains so until after the 2008 financial crisis. So the, what the U.S. wants and what it can have, the distance between these two things, as I say, we will, we will show how this expanded in our next uh, program, which will be definitely the last one we do on de-dollarization. And then we will move on to other topics, including uh, Michael and I were thinking we would do one on the political and geopolitical economy of the Ukraine, uh, conflict over Ukraine. So thanks very much. Uh, thanks to Paul Graham, who is behind the scenes, uh, uh, recording all this and being our wonderful videographer. Uh, and thanks, of course, to Ben again for hosting our show. Uh, see you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.